Hi, this is Paul. I am obviously back from vacation, and I want to little, do a little bit of talking about the Jesus movie, about the Asbury, what do they call it, uh, Awakening? Is that what the people there were calling it? And a little bit of history on this, because I think all of these things coming together are not coincidental. So the Jesus Revolution movie, you can find a lot of it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I will certainly see it at some point. I'll have more to say about it when it uh, when after I do get a chance to see it. Um, it's it's gotten very positive reviews. It's surpassed expectations at the box office. Um, I don't think that's a real huge surprise. the The thrust of the movie seems to be the acceptance that Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel have for Lonnie Frisbee and the hippies and you know that's sort of it sounds like from the movie that's that's kind of the big story because that's the big hurdle and that's a classic American story um, that that sort of that sort of pushing beyond the boundaries is we can stop the collider ad here that sort of pushing beyond the boundaries and radical acceptance is is something that Americans very much like in their films and this is going to be, you know, so part of the undertones of this movie is going to be Lonnie Frisbee's um, sex life, his death, um, his death by AIDS, which I don't think is is treated in the um, in the movie at all, and those issues that come around. So to deal with that, I wanted to, I, I looked around for a book that might sort of be able to give us some more information and frame this. And, and I came up with this book that came out, I think, in 2013. It was a Christianity Today 2013. I think it was the number one, number one award winner of that year. Christianity Today gives evangelical book, book awards. This is out both in audio version and Kindle and, and print. And, and I've been really enjoying it. It's a, it's a, it's a good book. Um, one of the things that caught me right away... Um, and I think some, summed up nicely, we'll get into more details. The typical Jesus people ethos was dominated by several core characteristics that mixed and matched influences from the evangelical and countercultural sides of the movement's parentage. First, the New Street Christians' uh, literalistic interpretation of the scriptures led them into a heavy emphasis on Pentecostal and charismatic phenomena, such as glossolalia, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and words of knowledge. Second, the Jesus people inhabited a supernaturally charged world, chuck full of signs and wonders and steady outpourings of what they perceived to be divine in intervention in their lives. This is, this is really helpful and key. And, and as we dig into this topic, I'm sure Byrne will have um, a lot to contribute because Byrne was around in all of this. We're going we're gonna to have to dig into the, the questions of drugs and psychedelics because that, that was a very big part of this movement. Now, now the movement itself burned out fairly quickly, but it, it left indelible, um, very deep impacts on the shape of American evangelicalism as things moved forward, just to finish this section. Third, their biblicism and emphasis on the supernatural supernatural reinforced a pre-existent countercultural pessimism about the direction of the world, and this is very much today, creating a pervasive conviction that they were living in the last days. 
Thus, study of Bible prophecy and emphasis on coming judgment came to preoccupy the Jesus people and figured strongly in their evangelistic message. Now, as with just about everything that comes around, this didn't come out of nowhere. The counterculture had been around before the 60s. The counterculture had its origins in the anti-establishment hedonistic attitudes of the 1950s beat movement, fed up with what they perceived as the sterile conformity and consumerism of post-war middle-class life, a sizable number of American youth began to drop out of the rat race of school, career, to seek fulfillment through personal, communal relationships, drugs, sex, music, and esoteric spirituality. With the history of bohemian and beat-friendly neighborhoods, San Francisco, particularly its Haight-Ashbury district became the first major outpost of this developing counterculture in late 1966 and during 1967's famous summer of love surprisingly within the initial flowering of san francisco's hippie community an, ev an evangelical christian strain of the counterculture would come to be known as the jesus movement first appeared in the persons of a converted bohemian couple in sausalito with an off-time difficult relationship with a square Baptist pastor. So those of you who know something about the Jesus Revolution uh, movie with Pastor Chuck Smith in Southern California, a lot of this began. In fact, Lonnie Frisbee was first up in Haight-Asbury, Summer of Love, um, the San Francisco area, and then decided to move down to uh, Orange County, and that's where that story really picks up. I don't know in the, how much in the movie it picks up on it. John McDonald was a native of Stockton, California, and a classmate of Billy Graham's at the Fundamentalist Wheaton College of, of Illinois, class of 43. Following degrees at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, now it's, it's helpful to know that Westminster um, was the conservative offshoot after old Princeton sort of blew up in the 20s over the modernist-fundamentalist split. An American Baptist Seminary in Berkeley, California, McDonald pastored several churches in Northern California. In 1960, he was chosen as the pastor of First Baptist Church of Mill Valley, California, a moderately sized church of about 200. The community was, the community was arty, as McDonald described it, and close to some of the other high-toned residential community in wealthy Marin County, just north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. Sometime in late 1964, Elizabeth Liz Wise began attend to attend the church. Raised in Auburn, California, that's about an hour north of Sacramento if you go up uh, Interstate 80 on the way to Reno. Um, raised in Auburn, California, about 30 miles east of Sacramento, a pious family that attended the First Baptist Church of Auburn, she had undergone a religious conversion at the age of 11 at a Bible conference at Mount Hermon Campgrounds near Santa Cruz. That's still in operation today. Pastor McDonald and his conservative congregation welcomed the quiet young woman, oblivious to the fact that she often attended services while coming down from the previous night's acid trip. What you're going to see in this story is, again, the psychedelics were a big part of this movement all the way around. As months passed, she continued to come back, and she asked the people at the church to pray for her husband, Warren Ted Wise. As it turned out, Ted and Elizabeth Wise were part of the vanguard of the beat sympathetic free spirits that predated the 1967 Summer of Love in the Bay Area. 
Ted Wise was a native of Lakeport, California, a small community on the, on the shores of Clear Lake, again, which is sort of in this area. Sacramento's kind of the largest city around. You've got Clear Lake, which is closer to the Bay Area, sort of northeast or northwest, and then you've got northeast, you've got Auburn, around 70 miles north of San Francisco. When he was a child, his family had moved to Auburn, when he, where he nursed an interest in art and literature until joining the Navy in the mid-50s. While serving a Navy tender in the Pacific Fleet, he learned how to work with canvas and began learning the sail-making trade. On shore leave in Japan, he experimented with marijuana and heroin. Even as a child, Wise had been fascinated by the idea of drug use. He cherished a magazine photo of a Mexican peasant with an array of mind-bending mushrooms. As a teenager, he was captivated by the 1955 Frank Sinatra film, The Man with the Golden Arm, which he remembered made heroin addiction look attractive. Wow. <laughs> by the 1970s in Patterson, New Jersey, heroin addiction did not look attractive. All you had to do was roll, was roll around in agony a bit. The worst thing that could happen would be you to get to meet Tim Novak. And this here is a picture of uh, Pastor McDonald. And if, you've, uh, if you remember the 1960s, this is kind of how it looked. Upon returning home to Auburn, Wise enrolled at Sierra College, which is, again, still here. While he continued to nurse his interest in jazz, musician, smoking preferences, he met Elizabeth, a young woman who, liked Ted, was interested in art and poetry. At Sierra, they were devotees of an English professor with connections to the beat scene in San Francisco. The allure of exciting artistic and literary scene then prompted Elizabeth to move to San Francisco in the summer of 1959 in order to start a career in modeling. Ted followed her shortly thereafter and enrolled in the California College of Arts, Arts and Crafts in Oakland. Once in town, they quickly, picked, um, they quickly moved into the Beat Commune at O'Farrell Street in the city's North Beach Bohemian Enclave. Our basic identity, Wise recalled, was as Beatniks. Life in the commune proved a constant source of new ideas and fascinating um, discussions as artists, academics, and literary figures such as Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence uh, Frailing Hetty turned up regularly at dinner time. In 1961, the couple married and a daughter was born. To make ends meet for his new family, Ted found work in the boatyards, eventually landing at Sutter Sail in the boho-friendly village of Sausalito, which is still a beautiful place. The Wises relocated across the bay. Throughout his period, drug use loomed large in the Wises' lives. Marijuana was the foundational drug of choice. George Hunter, leader of the legendary San Francisco band The Charlatans, was one of Ted's primary connections for pot. But mushrooms of all sort, mescaline, peyote, and amphetamines were all on the menu. But the imagination of many of the people in Wise's circles was fired by what they were hearing about the wonders of LSD, and Wise was no exception. After a failed attempt to secure some of the new mystery drug from Chemical Buddha, British philosopher turned Bay Area Zen Buddhist maven Alan Watts in late 1964, Wise and his friends finally scored a batch of, of prime black market LSD that came straight from the labs of Swiss pharmaceutical manufacturer Sandoz. His first trip was an epiphany. We tried it, and it was a phenomenal experience, Wise recalled. LSD use became the routine, often... He would, go to, he would go work high on acid. Small doses were interesting, he remembered, noting that after the initial score, supply was not a problem. We had a lot of it. 
1965, Ted Wise's life began, uh, seemed to be shaping up to be just to his liking. From his job, he made connections with the owners of the racing boats and yachts and spent much of his time and weekends as a crew member for his boss's customers. Plying a craft he loved, handing, hanging around with interesting people, and using drugs. Everything in, in life seemed to be coming up roses. All in all, he lived what he called, um, what he later claimed, on the outside looked like the coolest life one could have, with a mix of friends that included beats to yachtsmen, jazz musicians, artists, and poets, America's Cup captains, yogis, Buddhists, anarchists, and communists. The internal reality, however, was apparently less cool. Wise was regularly working long hours, going out carousing with friends and sleeping with a succession of girlfriends, while Liz stayed home with a family that soon included two children. Yeah, wives and girlfriends usually don't mix that well. Knowledge of Ted's philandering caused increasing rancorous relationships within the marriage. Later, Wise even admitted to plotting to murder Liz. Merciless, um, mercifully, on one of his frequent LSD trips, he began to be troubled by insights into his own character, or, more precisely, his lack thereof. He became increasingly convicted that, at bottom, Ted Wise was a self-centered liar, cheat, and thief, as he put it. I went into the place looking for the prince on the throne, but discovered only the rat in the basement. Ted, whose exposure to Christianity thus far, had been a couple of visits to church with his grandmother and a few mandatory chapel services in the Navy, was antagonistic when his wife began to attend services at the First Baptist of Mill Valley, but he noted she came back from church just glowing. Eventually, he decided to read the New Testament. I didn't want to be hypocritical about it. I was always putting it down, but had never actually read it. What he found, however, surpassed his mild expectations of finding a new role model in Jesus Christ. I just got fascinated by Jesus, Wise recalled. This, of course, sort of bears out Tom Holland's quote that I use fairly regularly in my sermons, that this character, Jesus, as a literary figure, just continues to impress. As he read, he was particularly impressed by Christ's claims to divinity and Paul's assertion that all people had a need to respond individually to his invitation to be born again. Convinced that Jesus was God, Wise later described his experience as a Paul-like conversion. While on my way to my own Damascus, I found it necessary to cry out to God to save my life in every sense of the word. Jesus knocked me off my metaphysical ass. I could choose him or literally suffer a fate worse than death. Having embraced Christianity, Wise felt his next step was something of a heavenly legal requirement, making a public acknowledgement of his belief in Jesus. One Saturday night in early 1965, he and Liz took a healthy hit of LSD and traveled to Berkeley to visit an old friend, Danny Sands. At the party, he found a house full of pot-smoking people plundering a major score Sands had just brought north from Mexico, Isolated in the midst of the mellow, marijuana-imbibing crowd, Wise began announcing that Jesus is my Lord, much to his fellow partiers' discomfort and befuddlement. And you should remember, this is 1966. Um, Christianity had a very different valence in America. It was very much the establishment. This was the height of church participation in, Amer in all of American history. And um, to be a Christian was, to be a practicing Christian meant you were sort of an intensified part of sort of the national, moral, religious establishment. 
So in other words, for these beatniks, this was establishment in the middle of their party. This was everything that they were sort of pushing against. So then how are you going to hold these two things together? Leaving the party, Wise, who had driven before while on LSD, experienced a nightmare of a ride back across the Bay Bridge. It seemed like the bridge was going straight up. Wise remembered years later, even more disconcerted, he claimed, it seemed like I was out of the car somewhere else, but consciously I myself still driving the car. Hearing demonic voices urging him to flee, he prayed as was, and was rationalizing his past behavior when he claimed he had heard an audible angelic voice telling him that excuse-making was inappropriate when speaking to God. His best option would be shut up. Eventually, the wises returned home, and Ted believed that God had rescued him and had audibly ordered him to attend church the next morning. So, come Sunday morning... The more distressing effects of the trip had worn off, but an altogether level things. Um, but at another level, things had gotten worse. He now felt that in addition to having a Sabbath requirement to head over to First Baptist of Mill Valley, who I'm sure were completely unprepared for him, the Lord was telling him to say something, the same thing, in fact, to everyone he met that day. He is back. Boy, what a what a great thing to say in this context. He is back. It almost sounds like something out of a Stephen King movie. almost sounds like, you know, he's coming, he's coming. Unable to argue himself out of the conviction that God was really talking to him, he and Liz drove to church. At the prescribed invitation time, Ted got up from his seat, walked forward to the front of the church, and made his declaration that Jesus is Lord. One of his friends later recalled Wise's description of what happened next. They were all upset. This was not in the program. The pastor, John McDonald, was completely surprised and decided to shake my hand. And I said, he is back. And John said, that's nice. Then I talked to the elders and told them that he is back. They stood there and looked at me strangely. Not a word. The weird thing that happened after I told the whole story, the story of the last two days, to John McDonald, verbatim, because he wanted to know how I became a Christian. He didn't know what to do about it. Like, wait a minute, is this thing real or not? Describe real. Because I knew, because he knew I was high. God would have been hard-pressed to find a time when I wasn't high. I already read, uh, I had already read that we are saved in the midst of our sins. It was fine with me that he caught me high and not fornicating. I was in serious trouble with some serious circumstances, and God answered my prayers to a greater degree than I had anticipated. Although the Baptists were just as befuddled and discomforted by wise as the partygoers in Berkeley had been the night before, the Sunday morning commitment was not a one-off response to an acid trip gone bad. In the months that followed, Wise shed his extracurricular lay lady friends, met regularly for personal study with McDonald, and kept on getting high. No, thou shalt nots about that. After completing a prescribed course of, of, of instruction for baptism, Ted Wise, the drug-taking beatnik, had become, as, later, as he later said, a dues-paying, meeting-going, praying-out-loud member of the First Baptist Church. Now, now, this would continue and continue to develop, and, and you know, nobody, were, nobody was quite able to figure out what to do with each other. Now, 
if you have a nice story where Ted Wise had been doing drugs and had cheated on his wife and was doing all of these things and then went forward in the Baptist church and gave up the cheating and especially gave up the drugs and cut his hair and began wearing what everybody else in the First Baptist Church was wearing, well, then suddenly everyone would be okay. But that, of course, is not what really happened. In fact, the whole drug thing and the lifestyle thing became sort of a big deal as this movement continued to go forward. And, and so many of the issues that happen in church, and, and particularly some of the fighting that's going on with respect to LGBTQ questions, in many ways, you, you can feel some similar tensions that are sort of at play. Well, what is and isn't permitted? Are psychedelics a help? Certainly brought him to Christianity. Now should they be given up? And you've got all these questions swirling around. Now, there are a lot more characters that get folded into this story, and um, there's an audiobook if you want to listen to the whole book. It's not my point here to read the whole thing, but just to hit some highlights and uh, pull a few things together. Now, Ted Wise would not be the last to realize that this, um, this new lifestyle, which his drugs and his abilities seemed to afford, was unsustainable and didn't really scale out in a in a in a very great way and, and and wasn't terribly stable and so others would gather and and of course the church just never quite knew what to do with this but um you know he kept going in terms of this call that he had from the lord by late 1967 Evangelical Concerns, this is, a, this is a group that began supporting Ted Wise and some of his ministry ideas of what to do with everyone that had come to hate Ashbury. Ministry Concerns had leased out a storefront in the Armenian Hall on Page Street as a base to begin evangelization of hate Ashbury. A little more than a block north of the intersection of hate and Ashbury Streets and a block south of the Golden Gate Park's hippie magnet, the Panhandle, the living room, as had been labeled as as it was generally labeled in the press, or the mission, as its staff tended to call it, became a reality as the summer of love began to fade. Now, I just listened to Jordan Peterson's um, very interesting, at least the first part of Jordan Peterson's interesting conversation with his name, Christopher Rufo, um, who, you know, his someone gave his aunt gave him a Che Guevara t-shirt and so you have all this romanticism around this uh, there's still a lot of romanticism about the summer of love and of course up in Seattle they tried it again and um, it just keeps collapsing which should be a sign of something a sign of a lot of things and you know part of what I think grabbed people's imagination about the the Asbury what did they call it? They didn't call it. They, they weren't using revival. They weren't using outpouring, um, awakening, let's say. I think that's the word that they used. In the storefront window hung two of Ted Wise's paintings, an oxbow with Jesus' words of Matthew eleven thirty, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, painted in script, and a psychedelic-looking painting of uh, painting quoting Jesus words from the cross father forgive them for they know not what they do inside other scripture verses and art hung hung on the walls exuding a comfortable hippie vibe the room itself was roughly 20 by 40 and contained a large table a white wicker couch and a motley assembled uh, assemblage of chairs that could accommodate perhaps 30 wandering souls who might come off the street at any one time 
In addition to a uh, cramped back room, there's a single frequently used toilet and a small kitchen alcove with an old refrigerator and some hot plates. From the limited funds available in, um, from evangelical concerns, occasional gifts from a few local churches and businessmen, and the gleanings of Wise and his friends' wives, the kitchen sweats as they called themselves, from the local grocer's out-of-date foods, the mission was able to feed its members and offer a cup of coffee, day-old donuts, and a bowl of hot soup to the neighbor's wandering youth. By the time the mission living room hit its stride, the ethos of the hate had already um, was already in the midst of a precipitous decline. For all of its colorful eccentricity and idealistic hopes, the hippie reality of the summer of love in hate Asbury had devolved into a mixture of overcrowding, hunger, filth, bad drug trips, crime, and predatory personal behavior. The streets of San Francisco's do-your-own-thing hippie ethos often turned into an every-man-for-himself struggle for existence. This jarring reality ultimately proved fatal to the countercultural dream, even as it provided a, provided a powerful impetus to the birth of the Jesus People movement. You can see these things come together. They're looking for something that will feed their souls and be sustainable for more than a few months or a couple of years. Sheer overcrowding was one source of misery in the height. An estimated 75,000 young people made their way to San Francisco in 1967, many more than the hip infrastructure or the city's overburdened social services could handle. Every night, thousands of near penniless young people crashed into whatever hovel um, they could afford or find, and many slept outside in the cold damp of the city night. Now, in terms of the Asbury awakening, there's some similarities here. Um, now you have mass media, and of course, once the news picks this up, out it will go. And the development of mass media is actually an important part of this larger story of the Jesus people, because that will also figure into this, and sort of diluted elements of it will become, a little bit later on, um, evangelicalism, the seeker movement, the megachurch movement, um, Christian contemporary music, even though this movement itself was unsustainable, many of the ideas became popularized and sort of worked out further into the evangelical culture. Along with the lack of housing came a food shortage. Eager hands snatched up free sandwiches, bread, and donuts distributed by various groups, straight and hip. Eventually, the need was so great that the overwhelmed diggers closed down a late-night afternoon soup um, giveaway in the panhandle. By mid-1967, the Oracle advised young people intent on coming to San Francisco that they might as well forego the flowers in their hair if they were not going to bring a sleeping bag, clothes, food, and money. The free and easy hippie celebration of sexuality also manifests itself in all sorts of unforeseen bummers. Venereal diseases were rampant in the hate. The hippies seeking treatment for syphilis, gonorrhea, and herpes combined with drug overdoses to overwhelm the free clinic and the city's health care department. Even more troubling was the generally the degrading effect on the hate had on young runaway girls who came to the Bay Area. As one young teenage girl named Alice told early Jesus people figure David Hoyt, girls didn't have any trouble finding a place to spend the night if they were willing to pay the right price. Others turned to full-fledged prostitution to feed themselves and their drug habits. Sexual violence towards women was also a grim reality. 
As early as April 1967, one hippie broadside lamented the situation. Rape is, a common, rape is as common as bullshit on hate street. In general, by midsummer 1967, women in the hate were at risk of all sorts of emotional and physical violence from their male counterparts. While these discomforts and hardships were daunting enough, it's interesting where, okay, so you've, you've got obviously your male-female dynamics going on here. Part of what I'd say is different about the current moment is that with the rise of pornography, uh, a lowering of, you know, the, the, sorry, the lowering cost of sex, in some ways, without the ability to really get, go take these things to excess, people can sort of park or get stuck in some of these places for longer. While these discomforts and hardships were daunting enough, the hippie ferment began, um, the hippies' fervent belief in the spiritual and personal blessings of drug use was responsible for perhaps the largest share of trouble. Besides growing harassment from the police, overdoses, bad trips, and the hyper-aggressiveness associated with speed were a constant in the life of the hate. These problems multiplied over, um, as overcrowding grew, and the drug and the drug supply's safety and quality were increasingly compromised. A closely related problem was a dramatic increase in assaults and robberies in the hippie district as the new attempt to control its hitherto free and easy drug trade overwhelmed the golden rule ethos of the counterculture. As one author described, the flower movement was like a valley of a thousand plump white rabbits surrounded by wounded coyotes. When two popular hippie drug dealers were found brutally murdered in separate incidences later that summer, it became clear that many, to many that the bloom was off the hippie rose. Amidst this chaos, the Page Street living room mission proved to be a haven for wandering young people for close to two years. Borrowing a page from the long-established routines of Skid Row missions, you begin to see all of these other elements sort of coming together in this story. They attracted kids with a, with a chance to rest and trade foods for a chance to expose their clientele to the gospel. At the mission, the bare minimum of that translated to quietly eating one soup while listening to one of the staff read from the American Bible Society's new translation of the New Testament, Good News for Modern Man. Now, I'm a little, I was born in 63, so I was four in 67, obviously did not participate in this, but as I was coming of age in the 70s, a lot of the, let's say that the out, the um, outgrowths of these things, such as the Good News for Modern Man translation, um, became popular. My father's church, in fact, was kind of a counterculture church for often young Christian Reformed people that were slightly tuned on by this, and then by the... Um, obviously by the civil rights movement, and wanted to have um, a Christian Reformed experience that was worshiping with African-American folks. Um, and so my father's church was kind of a place where young people, young Christian Reformed people could come. They could still be Christian Reformed, but they could explore relationships with African-Americans. And many of these issues that, of course, weren't didn't have the intensity that was going on, were very much present in the church that I was in growing up, including the, 
the heroin addiction center that was right next door and partially run by the church and the community. Steve Hefner remembered that their attempts to get kids into the mission for this program were pretty straightforward. We were up front. We'd say, hey, we got soup here. We got soup and New Testament. You sit down, you eat the soup, you'll have to listen to the New Testament. At times he recalled the hippies complaining. They might go in the direction of, that's un-American, that's not right, that's not cool, and we'd say, well, that's the way it is, and here, we got donuts too. More often than not, their pitch proved successful. Inside casual conversations, we're always steered towards talking about Jesus. The vast majority of those who came politely, uh, came politely listened and left, but sometimes they engaged the staff in philosophical discussions about religion. Surely most appreciated a place to sit down for a while, a cup of coffee and a meal, and on rare occasions, in violation of the group's lease, a place to stay for the night. Not everyone appreciated the arrival of a hip version of evangelical Christianity and the hate. It was not unusual for some drop-ins to stir up aggressive theological and philosophical arguments. Proving to be more of a nuisance were the neighborhood troublemakers who regularly included the Page Street Mission on their rounds. One creepy drifter who came in for handouts was an ex-con named Charlie Manson. For a while, he was a regular, often spooking many of the other hate denizens. Mickey Stevens, an aspiring guitar player, remembered that he let Manson jam on his electric, um, his electric guitar in there occasionally, but eventually he quit, claiming that after Manson had been playing, it seemed like his guitar was demon-possessed. Seriously. Ted Wise recalled one peculiar incident in which Manson sat staring at him while playing an acoustic guitar. He was plucking things on it and trying to talk to me with it. Jim Dupe recalled another incident when Manson was proclaiming that he was God, to which Wise responded with a guffaw, saying, If you're God, I am truly disappointed. Steve Hefner recalled him as being highly disruptive, but noted that some dis, um, with some dissatisfaction that he always had soup and had, and had to sit there and listen to the word. Eventually, Manson realized that his games did not seem to impress any of the mission's regulars, and he stopped coming. Perhaps the biggest thorn in the side of hippie Christians was Tall Tom, a lanky southern drug-addled, fiddled-playing hippie reputed to have been a grad of MIT and a Rhodes Scholar who was in the habit of arguing with staff, spewing profanity, and making innuendos about Jesus' sexual orientation. One time after a shooting match with Steve Hefner, he walked outside, picked up a brick he found lying on the sidewalk, and threw it against the plate glass window. It bounced off. Irritated, the young man picked up the brick again and hurled it at the window, only to have it bounce off a second time. After repeating the process a few more times, he stalked off, mumbling to himself. Hefner recalled turning to Wise and asking in disbelief, did you see that? Wise replied that he had, in which Hefner exclaimed, I'm glad you were here to see it too. Though no records we kept of how many contacts or converts the living room mission made, it seemed clear that they were having that they were achieving a fair amount of success in their work. Jim Dupe was quoted in an article in the now you'll see the way the press sort of begins to multiply this stuff and, and create the, the mythology around it. Oakland Tribune in mid-1968 claimed that some weeks they had a blessed experience of helping as many 20 people make definite decisions to come clean and be followers of Christ. Now, pay attention to that come clean part. 
Steve Hefner estimated that he had personally witnessed some to like to some 2,000 kids on the street during those days. Even a conservative estimate, estimate made by one of the group in an early 1990s interview would have meant that um, it had close to contact with 20,000 people. Whatever the exact number was, it was clear that people in the, in the Page Street mission interacted with thousands of young people, persuading a number of them to make Christian commitments in the process. Lonnie Frisbee, another of the Living Room's early disciples, would play a key role in the growth of the nascent Jesus movement outside of the Bay Area. A 17-year-old um, from Costa Mesa down in Orange County, Frisbee had been born with a club foot and reared in an evangelical home troubled by divorce. And as a child, he was reportedly sexually abused by a friend of the family. As a teenager, he demonstrated an artistic bent and attained minor teenage eminence as one of the regular dancers on L.A., DJ Lloyd Thaxton's afternoon TV show, Shebang. Slight of build, long-haired, bearded, and often dressed in leathers with a small pouches hanging from his belt, he looked like a little teenage Jesus. When the guys from the living room bumped into Frisbee in the fall of 1967, they found him holding forth on a street corner, waving a Bible and preaching about Jesus, flying saucers, and Christ consciousness. Take, and, and again, you can see you know, where... Some of what's going on in this little corner, stuff going on. Taking him in hand, they took him, they, uh, they took him for some coffee to discuss his beliefs and eventually brought him to the group house, where he informed them that he had just had his own personal the um, theophany. Just a few weeks later, he had been wandering nude on acid in the vicinity of um, Ta Keats Falls near Palm Springs, where he proclaimed he was confronted by Jesus. He explained to them that he was the only way to know God. I accepted him, and he said, I'm going to send you to the people. He gave me a vision of thousands of people, and they were wandering around in a maze of darkness with no direction or purpose for their lives. He showed me that there was a light on me and that he was placing, that he was placing on my life. I was going to bear the word of the Lord." Wise and the others proceed from Frisbee's fragmented testimony that the boy had a Christian background, that he had gone forward at an altar call at eight, and that his head was bent out of shape by drugs. Rescuing him from a bad living arrangement in the hate, the group accepted Frisbee, and after studying the Bible with others, he eventually moved towards more orthodox views. This is all footnoted in this book. It's a, it's a good book. With the addition of converts like Frisbee and Sachs, the Page Street increasingly functioned as a new evangelical Christian community within the larger Bay Area hippie scene. Now, communal living became a part of this too, and by the time, by the time I went to, to Calvin, there was, there was still a, a communal living home, a Christian one in, um, in Grand Rapids that had kind of had troubles and they were part of some of the people that had been in there became part of the church that I went to in Grand Rapids and, and very much provided some of the DNA for the church I attended there. The establishment of the Living Room Mission in Page turned out to be only part of the Wises and Friends larger vision for a radical, hippie-friendly New Testament Christianity. Shortly before the opening of the mission, the Wises and another three couples in their circle had finally moved full steam ahead into communal living. 
cramming into the house in Mill Valley what the Hefners and the Dupes had rented, and the Wises and Sands and their four children camping out on mattresses in the home's two-car garage. Happily, between Steve Hefner's check from his new station, Ted Wise's small stipend from evangelical concerns, and small gifts the groups received, money didn't appear to be a problem. The couples decided to keep a communal purse in a drawer in the kitchen. Money went into a box on the wall, and with 10% taken out and put into the bottom section to give back to God, recalled Sandy Sands years later, there's no restriction on the drawer. Jim Dupe later wrote, anyone could go to the drawer and take money out or put money in. Key to this arrangement was a commitment not to question each other's drawer-based transactions. Everyone had to make money decisions for themselves. By the time the living room mission was up and running in the hate, the group had finally come across a house which would suit their needs. An old two-story, four-bedroom, two-bath farmhouse, the house, in the middle of a new subdivision of Nevada, about 10 miles further north in Marin County. Rented at $200 a month. <laughs> Not going to get rent like that in Nevada anymore. A house had a big front porch, a large fence yard, and a fireplace in the living room to add a bit of homey charm. Each couple was allotted a bedroom with the kids in one big room and bunk beds and the kitchen and living room and part of the downstairs area designated as common turf for meetings, meals, and guests. Soon after the families moved in, a visitor from First Baptist of Mill Valley came with a case of pocket New Testaments he was donating to the group's efforts at the hate. Looking around at what was going on, he suggested that it would become, he suggested what would become the name, which would be later publicized, the House of Acts, because they were living in the first community, the first Christian community. If you read Bill Hybels' story of the foundation of Willow Creek, you'll find we want an axe-formed Christianity and that then Bill Hybels and, and those who would sort of put out Willow Creek would also have that. This is pretty standard stuff in, um, in Christianity. Everyone sort of wanted to get back to that that first, those honeymoon those honeymoon verses in the book of Acts, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where they all shared, and of course, Ananias and Sapphira will come too. No sooner had the four couples moved in, in than their financial situation became suddenly less stable. Steve O'Shea, that's one of the Steves here, was also a, a, a radio DJ, after only three months in his job at KYA, had managed to get himself fired yet again because, in John McDonald's words, he had freely witnessed to the new life in, G in Christ between songs on another major market AM rock station. This time, Hefner made no attempt to find another radio gig and simply plunged ahead, devoting himself full-time to the group's work. Existing now largely on Wise's small salary, random gifts from church folks, and short-term odd jobs, they picked up wherever and... Um, where picked up here and there for cash or services. For example, the men built a wall for a local dentist in exchange for dental work. The group decided that they would depend on God to supply their financial wherewithal. This proved all the more an act of faith as the group's core expanded. Eventually, Lonnie Frisbee and Connie Bremer, soon to be Frisbee, moved into the house. Rick Sachs then came along with his wife, Megan. Numbers shifted from coming and going, but it was not unusual for the core group in the household, not counting the teens who had crashed there for the night, to number a dozen adults and seven children. Now, they're living this life, they're bringing in people, they're feeding people, they're doing all this very much 
very romantic, very inspirational. People had mixed feelings about the house. Um, you know, cops would have to be called if some of the people that were crashing there weren't well behaved. And the cops also began to sort of respect what they were doing because, of course, the police pick up people that they can't seem to control. So things just continued to work out. But then, of course, mass media publicity. Their connections with the Board of Evangelical Concerns was obviously the key factor in helping the wises and friends make their way on the radar screams of Bay Area evangelicals. By the end of 1967, they actually earned some, some nationwide publicity in the form of an article in an evangelical monthly Christian life, a solidly respectable periodical based in the holy city of, of Midwestern, not Grand Rapids, Wheaton, Illinois, Billy Graham-style post-war evangelical movement. Christian life filled the mailboxes of tens of thousands of subscribers each month with news of victorious evangelistic campaigns, devotional reflections, Bible study aids, tips on child and family life, and advertisements for baptismal tanks and vacation Bible school curriculum. However, the cover of the 1968 issue promised a major jog from the magazine's usual image of evangelical propriety, Staring at, subscriber, um, staring at subscribers was Ted Wise, his longish hair, handlebar mustache, and slightly amused look away from the middle-class respectability to the famed pulpiteers and Bible teachers who usually grace the, magazines, the magazine. Inside the cover story, God's Thing in Hippieville contained the impression of Maurice Allen, a conservative 32-year-old English congregational minister who had been in the States for a while and studied at the Moody Bible Institute and Winota Lake, now Grace Theological Seminary. Somehow, while visiting the Bay Area that summer, he had heard about the hippie Christians hanging out around First Baptist and Mill Valley and came calling on John McDonald with an idea about doing a magazine piece on what was going on there. The Baptist pastor told Allen about the exciting growth of the group and quickly evolved nature of the just-founded evangelical concerns, and he put him in touch with Ted Wise. Over the next several weeks, Allen traipsed along with the group on their rounds in the hate, even as it turns out going with them to visit um, Lou Gottlieb's famous Morningstar Ranch, where Jim Dupe did a little contextual sharing of the gospel in the nude amid the unclothed hippies there, and he and his family spent a lot of time with their families up in the house in Mill Valley before departing that summer. The magazine's the magazine hit subscribers' mailboxes in mid-December. Alan presented a story of Wise's troubled marriage, extensive drug use, as well as the fact that, in a strange way, LSD had sped up Ted Wise's conversion to Christ. Although the article, given, given the intended audience, could not help but paint the living room group and hippie environs as eccentric and exotic, the article included a helpful glossary of hippie terms and phrases for the enlightenment of its evangelical readership for such things as blow the mind, groovy, and pot, usually smoked in joints. Its overall tone was overwhelmingly positive. Allen saw the con contextual nature of workers to evangelize the hippies, arguing that the psychedelic evangelists like Ted, in his culture, um, Ted belong in this culture. It's a part of them. They are part of it. These men are not in um, as not even, these men are in as not even Billy Graham could be. Beyond this, however, there was something about their style and spirit he found oddly attractive. This is a quotation. 
I like to think of them as a kind of evangelical Robin Hood and his merry men, with their different costumes, communal ghetto-style living, and anti-authoritarian ways, they outwardly resemble the mythical English folk hero. Also like him, they are essentially on the right side of what is righteous and good. Sideburns, paramilitary jackets, thigh-high <coughs> thigh dresses, red Indian motifs. They dig these and others telltale marks of the interstitial culture of the psychedelic scene. Strongly pacifist, not unduly patriotic, yet they love Jesus and their allegiance to him is undeniable. undeniable. You've probably heard me in a number of videos talk about Christianity's ability to get into different cultures and have different cultures instantiate it. Well, one of the big questions is going to be, well, can Christianity um, accommodate LSD? Um, can Christianity accommodate some of the other elements that were part of this hippie revival, which sort of grew out of the beat culture? And then how is the rest of the church going to sort of get on with it? As you would imagine, um, many of the readers of that magazine didn't necessarily celebrate what they read. It, and that, of course, will be a big element of the Jesus Revolution movie, and it'll be a big element of this unfolding story as it goes along. One of the most salient parts of this, though, is in this book, and it deals with uh, David Wilkerson, who's the author of the 1963 book, The Cross and the Switchblade. One visit that caused a particular stir was an expedition by Assemblies of God evangelist David Wilkerson, the author of the 1963 The Cross and the Switchblade, and the head of Teen Challenge, an organization targeting street gang members and drug addicts. The increased use of drugs associated with the counterculture had opened up new dimension in Wilkerson's ministry, and he came to San Francisco intent on checking out the local scene for a new book and for a film he wanted to show at his speaking engagement. After a quick stop at the living room, he made an appointment to visit the communal house in Nevada and showed up with a film crew in tow. Initially open to being in the movies, Wise and Friends, Enthusiastic enthusiasm quickly melted away under the hot lights and Wilkerson's interrogation. The Pentecostal preacher asked them several questions about whether a hippie could come to Jesus and still smoke pot or take LSD, and they asked if they were really telling hippies to stop doing all the drug use, cease and desist free sex, and cut their long hair. So, what's happening? They're sort of trying to filter out the, well, what's essential and and, and what's, what in the long term is going to lead towards stability and flourishing and what um, is going to have to be cut. Steve Hefner recalled that Wise said something to the effect of, well, we tell them about Jesus Christ, and that when it came to cleaning up a person's life, the individual in question and Jesus could get together on that. The folks at the living room were not in that business. After Wilkinson asked the group if they practiced free love in their communal living arrangement, Wise and, other, and the others exploded and ordered them to turn the cameras off and leave. What does that mean? Are they offended because of course they aren't, which was it sounds like probably true, of course they weren't, and this is, this is an offensive question, but... After Wilkinson asked the group if they were practicing, um, 
That evening, Wilkerson called, apologized, and asked them to make another attempt at the interview down in the hate, and offered a $100 donation as a gesture of sincerity. Seeing him as repentant and convinced they should forgive him, they agreed to meet him the next day down on Page Street. The next morning, they found not only Wilkerson, but his film crew waiting for them, but a TV news crew from Channel 2 in Oakland. Channel 2 came in filming Wilkerson, Wilkerson, Wilkerson said Hefner, who was filming us. And after taking footage of the mission, they sat down with both sets of cameras rolling. Again, Wilkerson opened up about the same line of questioning. After initially playing along with the questions and joking about taking drugs during their Bible studies, Wise and friends finally just stopped the interview and threw Wilkerson and the TV people off the premises. But the damage had been done. That evening footage of the interview ran in the Bay Area, and the group heard reports that it had been picked up by a few stations across the country. Wilkerson then went on local Christian radio to expose the hippie mission. Can you imagine how this would go in YouTube land? Exposed the hippie mission and contacted the editors of Christian Life about the dangerous group that they were promoting. A little bit of cancel culture right there. Wilkerson incorporated snippets of the interview into a film he showed in conjunction with his speaking engagements across the country in late 1968 and 69, and in his new book highlighting the perils of hippie drug use, Purple Violet Squish. <laughs> Wilkerson referenced his encounter at the living room. I had a shocking conversation with four psychedelic ministers. They told me they dropped acid, took LSD, before they understood the bi undertook the Bible study. Then they were especially intrigued by their study of the book of Revelation under the influence of LSD. One man said, what a blast, even the beasts come to life. Under the influence of psychedelics, this generation of hippies is questioning the old truths of the Bible. They seek salvation in a pill. You just, it's just amazing how some things just don't get old and how these ways that we react to each other and just doesn't go away. The flap over Wilkinson's accusations caused no little stir with the advisory board of evangelical concerns. As McDonald related the story, the board grilled Wise, Sands, Dupe, and Hefner on the occasions, on the accusations, and assured by their denials, issued statements that bluntly refuted the use of any hallucinogens or narcotics by the living room staff. But despite their pleas of innocence, McDonald later learned that, regrettably, there was some substance to the criticism. Ted Wise remembered the situation. The problem was that the preachers had made the assumption that they weren't doing it anymore. <laughs> there was still a fair amount of drug use going on, and marijuana was routinely trotted out down at the Page Street Mission. One of the basic factors was that a social joint was an aid to evangelism. It gave me the opportunity to share the word, Jim Stoop later stated. Indeed, an, an unwillingness to smoke grass often proved detrimental to their witnessing efforts in those early days as wary hippies were prone to suspect that anyone who would not partake in the countercultural's primary social lubricant was a narc. And drug use was, was just happening, um, and drug use was not just happening down at the mission. Wise remembered one Bible study in particular at the house that McDonald led, during which a teenage, uh, a neighborhood teen, stowed away some grass down in the basement. Slowly, he recalled, people began to get up and meander downstairs where the pot was, until McDonald was left practically all by himself. Afterwards, Wise felt bad, wanting to explain to the Baptist pastor that it wasn't his teaching, it was the pot in the basement. But according to Wise, 
there was ultimately they were ultimately not trying to pull a fast one on one of their friend on their friends at Evangelical Concern. He had never asked, said McDonald. Um, we would have told him. Nobody was hiding it. As Jim Dupe wrote years later, they never considered that there was anything wrong with smoking pot in and of itself. Nonetheless, the group began to have some misgivings about their drug use by this time. One problem they encountered was financial. Early on, into the start of their evangelistic mission, they had decided, on the basis of proper stewardship, that they could no longer see their way to buying grass and would only participate in freely proffered pot. We didn't have the, we didn't have the money to buy drugs, explained Dupe years later, and in light of those circumstances, felt that it was inappropriate to use God's money in that way. By the time of Wilkerson's visit, however, the principals at the living room had started started deciding that other drugs were off the table as well. Rick Sachs related one incident from sometime in late 1967 that was key to his own move away from psychedelics. One afternoon, they had finally had a breakthrough with an, with an early frequenter at the Page Street Mission, one Stefano, who had finally accepted Jesus as a savior. He laid it over the straying sheep they were brought back into the fold. One of the extended members of the group said he had just gotten his hands on some, some fresh acid and wondered if perhaps they should celebrate Stefano's entry into the Lamb's Book of Life by taking some. They thought this was a splendid idea, piled into the car and took a drive to Land's End on the west side of San Francisco Peninsula, where they proceeded to drop, at, to drop LSD and marvel at the wonder of God's creation. Rick Sachs remembered... I was in this little hole on the side of the cliff, just um, just so stoned I couldn't talk. And I'm watching God spinning clouds around and imagine seeing his finger, very imaginal, um, reaching down and touching the clouds and giving them a squirrel and God displaying his power and majesty for me. All of a sudden, Stefano gets up and he's about ready to jump off the cliff and I couldn't talk. I just, I remember praying and saying, God, I realize I'm doing something that's preventing me from saving this guy's life, and I don't know what to do. Help him. And Ted started talking to him, and Ted talked him through it, and Stefano sat down. And that was my last time taking LSD. It was then that I remember I couldn't do what God was calling me to do because of this thing I thought I was doing to get closer to God. I was here, and as, a, I was here as an ambassador to do it with a job to do. Just as acid had become had come to be viewed as a bad form among the group, the influence of their sustained study of the Bible and their contact with establishment evangelicals and probably their experience with Wilkerson gradually convinced them that perhaps the pot smoking had also stopped. Dan Sands, on the strength of the scriptural exhortation not to be a stumbling block to others, began to strongly voice his concerns that their fondness for marijuana was indeed a stumbling block uh, stumbling their brothers in the church. And as Ted Wise recalled, there was also a growing concern about biblical injunctions urging Christians to be of sober mind. Concerns with the fact that smoking grass was considered a bad witness in some people's minds, they decided it was best that they should change their ways, and from that point forward, the drugs were, for the most part, left behind. The house, in fact, would break up, um, by the summer of 1968, the communal living arrangements at the House of Axe in Nevada had begun to wear a bit thin. 
As might be expected under such circumstances, a constant level of activity, the tension of making ends meet, the crowded living conditions, and the long months of living cheek by jowl with the same old people and their same, short, their same old shortcomings proved a long-term corrosive force. But there were other contributing factors. One of the irritants was a creeping legalism that gained entrance through the group's intense desire to hew close to the New Testament instructions. Tobacco use was a point of contention. Although the Wises, their friends, and their extended circle had by this time pretty much ejected drugs out of their personal vice inventories, tobacco was one addiction that plagued some of the group. Judy Dupe particularly had been a fairly heavy smoker and had a tough time kicking the habit. In an attempt to help her again, in the spirit of avoiding being stumbling blocks, an edict was passed that no one was allowed to smoke in the house or on the grounds. This caused, caused no small degree of personal aggravation, sneaking around and hassling with nicotine-addicted um, prospects. Another source of tension in the area of male-female hierarchies within the group. They talked about who was doing all of the kitchen work, and it was the women. And then they had another guy from... Um, Pastor Weirwile, um, and I mentioned to Sam in the in the thing today, he came from yet another group called The Way and led some people, and that sort of broke things down. Exit of half of the group's original members, along with Lonnie Frisbee's early departure, because they felt God had called him to return to Southern California, signaled the end of the Living Room House of Acts group. Both both the mission on Page Street in the Height and the communal house in Nevada continued on for a few months, but the group's essence had evaporated. The Height was now long past its golden moment, and drug abuse and crime had turned into a countercultural version of Skid Row. Likewise, the new hip Christians moved on. In 1969, the living room closed. Now notice, this didn't last very long. This is like a year, year and a half, but it takes on a mythology that sort of goes. And all of the things that brought them down would be almost all of the things that anyone reading this would, with a degree of experience with um, human beings, would imagine would bring them down. Now, what struck me by that were, were some, of the, some of the similarities to, to what we see going on now, the interest in psychedelics. Now, you can see it's all quite a bit developed after 50-plus years now. Psychedelics, there's a lot more sophistication around them. Um, you, you're not dealing with sort of the 50s. We're, we're probably dealing with, uh, what are we dealing with with this, with this current moment Time Magazine covered the story in 1971. By that point, it was all sort of past its peak. The movement, for lack of a better word, is raging across the nation, Time Magazine said. Like a wildfire, like a wild brush fire, jumping at an obstacle to break out. Almost by spontaneous combustion in dozens of places and dozens of forms, this revival spirit unprogrammed with no mission board strategy, no super evangelist at the head. Can you hear some of the elements of the excitement about the Asbury awakening there? Very similar dynamic. However, by the latter part of 1972, it's safe to say that few people outside the bounds of the movement itself or the larger realm of evangelicalism were paying much attention to the Jesus people. Curiosity and fashion are fickle things, and by the fall of 1972, it was apparent that the public's curiosity had been sated. Stories about the Jesus movement had dwindled significantly. 
and there had been brief and notable upsurge in late June during Campus Crusade's Christ Explo 72 conference in, in Dallas, that which had attracted 85,000 young people for a week of seminars, rallies, and evangelizing, and a crowd of nearly 200,000 for a day-long conference closing Jesus Music Festival, Godstock, as the press dubbed it, you might catch a New York Times article on the Asbury Revival um, sort of connecting it with Woodstock. That's sort of a stock American comparison that people like to make for these sort of pop-up mass movements. But after the well-behaved, Jesus-cheering young people cleared out of Dallas, it was apparent that the media considered the Jesus freaks to be yesterday's news, except for a tiny trickle of stories in evangelical magazines and a few late-to-the-market, mostly academic books. The, bugs, the buzz over the Jesus people died out during late 1972 and early 1973. By the fall of 73, the evangelical monthly Eternity printed an article by Ron Enroth that told the magazine's readers that despite the lack of media scrutiny, the Jesus people were actually still alive and thriving. Eventually, however, the movement did peter out. By the late 1970s, many of its older, longtime members had moved on to school, marriage, jobs, family, and local church life. New musical styles and youth culture arose that rejected the countercultural model from which the Jesus people emerged, and the movement, almost without exception, withered away. I witnessed much of this rise and, fir and fall firsthand as a high school senior and a young adult living in the far northwest suburbs of Chicago in 1970. I, this is the author, not Paul Vanderclay, um, I, along with many others of my peers, was influenced by the Jesus movement. Coming of age included attending Jesus rallies and concerts, going to coffee houses, reading Jesus' paper from across the United States, and flashing the one-way sign at passing cars bedecked with Jesus stickers. In the 70s, there are all kinds of stickers and slogans and, and all sorts of stuff that, that, um, that just became tremendously popular. Um, this one author talks about Beatlemania as part of this. Um, I'm going to find where I... The Jesus movement was the culmination of a trend that had begun as far back as the 1920s and 30s and produced the Youth for Christ movement during World War II. The desire to incorporate the countercultural Jesus people themselves and the acceptance, often grudgingly, of their taste for hippie fashions, music, and ambiance, in a way, sent the message that it was all right for evangelical kids to occupy their own cultural space distinct from that of their older evangelical brethren. In fact, the Jesus People movement marked the first time that American evangelical youth received a go-ahead to replicate the larger youth culture. You, you can see where, okay, we're going to drop the drugs, we're going to drop the sex, but you can have your hair long, you can wear the bell-bottoms, you can have the one way, you can have all sort of the biblicistic things that sort of get kitschy and cool and well, you know, the, the kids in the suburban churches can, can sort of play at this a little bit without having it disrupt their lives too terribly much. This strategy for accommodation has since become part of the evangelical landscape, both in the United States and increasingly and in other areas of the globe where American evangelical styles are influential. Closely related to the matter of youth culture was the manner in which the Jesus people impacted the evangelical relationship to popular culture as a whole. 
The enthusiasm they showed for buttons, bumper stickers, Bible covers, posters, crosses, and other Jesus junk was but one aspect of the Jesus people's friendliness towards popular culture. Part and parcel of the baby boom television immersed generation, the Jesus people moved and breathed within the surrounding culture like a fish in water. As a matter of course, they incorporated their pop culture sensibilities in their religious lives and in the process constituted the leading edge of what proved to be the mortal blow to traditional evangelical abstinence from worldly amusements. This pop culture friendly aspect of the Jesus People movement had tremendous implications for the role of music within evangelical subcultures. This sort of leads into James Wellman's book, High on God. And, you know, when I talk to James, I'll probably, uh, we're talked about doing a thing on his book, talk about some of these issues. First, the Jesus People's enthusiasm for pop and rock music based idioms brought forth Jesus rock and in so doing marked the beginning of what would eventually become Christian contemporary music, the CCM industry, which had become a major component of American evangelicalism's mass media bookstore infrastructure, as well as a significant aspect of everyday life and devotion spawning Christian radio, um, spawning radio station formats, summer festivals, websites, and the like. There would be no Phil Vischer and Veggie Tales if it had not been for the Jesus movement and all that this, all that this brought about. But the emergence of CCM, Christian contemporary music, is just part of the larger musical impact of the Jesus People movement. The Jesus people's taste for simple folk-based melodies and scriptural passages in their corporate worship has had a profound effect on the worship of American evangelical congregations. Now, this was written in 2013, where the worship wars are just sort of subsiding. The worship wars were sort of the... the um, uh, there, the Christian Reformed Church went through that. Many churches did. Do you have traditional organ music in church, or do you have... A guitar and drums and now again those of you who are watching this know this is going to lead into what we're dealing with with um, orthodox music and liturgy and the emergent movement which follows after the seeker movement the minstrels of jesus people movement were major architects of what had become known as praise and worship music this really in the 80s begins to take off with maranatha music and eventually hillsong the object of scorn for many traditionalists and church music professionals, the popularity of this music has, in turn, become the focus of the infamous worship wars, which have embroiled thousands of American Protestant congregations since the 1980s. The rise of new styles of evangelical music, easily accessible to anyone familiar with the larger popular culture, bespeaks another way in which the Jesus People movement had impacted American evangelicalism the rise of the seeker-sensitive megachurch. Two of the prototypes for the megachurch model, the original Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, and the Willow Creek Community Church of South Barrington, Illinois, both trace their roots, albeit very differently, to the days of the Jesus People movement. Both have become influential models and planters of similar, similar style churches. The casual come-as-you-are informality and attachment to up-tempo contemporary music and pop culture that are the staples of this dynamic new ecclesiastical form are the direct result of the Jesus People movement. 
Yet the impact, the largest impact of the Jesus Revolution was, now, now this is not just American church, this is worldwide. The Nigerian Anglican Church that meets with us when I, the pastor himself does a lot of the music and he'll very quickly switch from Anglican hymns, Nigerian songs to Christian contemporary music. Just whoosh, out it all comes. Tens of thousands of youth from outside evangelical ranks found the Jesus movement to be a congenial entry point into the larger American evangelical subculture. More important, millions of evangelical youth were able to negotiate a truce between the demands of their own religious heritage and the allure of the secular youth culture. Indeed, the much-discussed resurgence of evangelicalism that became apparent in the 1980s probably could not have, have occurred had the movement not taken place. So this, this movement is very much a piece of the overall picture. Now, some of you know who Alyssa Childers is. Her uh, YouTube channel is pretty decently sized now. She spends most of her time warning about the evils sometimes of uh, churches that are woke, sometimes the evils of churches that are too um, charismatic. She had had a career in con Christian contemporary music. Um, what was really interesting to me was that her father, which I figured out a little while after her channel, her father was Chuck Gerard, and that name uh, rang a bell because I remember my parents um, buying his music, and so his music was some of the early CCM that I grew up with. And in fact, about six or seven years ago, I thought, what, whatever happened to Chuck Gerard? And when music was then readily available on on you know, on all these different music platforms, I pulled it up, and sure it was. There was the album that I grew up listening to, and can almost um, I can sing those songs in my mind as as they go around. And so, again, it's interesting how these things continue sort of to to develop, and they they don't really go away. They're just part of the history. So, I think that's good for today. Um, I was reading this book on vacation and thinking about some of these connections and sort of wanted to make a video and um curious because I very much do see it connected with with what we have going on in this little corner what's going on with Jordan Peterson what's going on with the the interest in psychedelics it's very interesting the continuity of this all so leave a comment let me know what you think